If you have a Bible, I would like you to open to John chapter 3, Gospel of John, third chapter. This is a fourth week in an 11-week series where we're thinking about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. So week one, we talked about who is the Holy Spirit. That was a question. And the answer that we landed on is the Holy Spirit is the one who proceeds from the Father. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and with the Son. He is truly God. He's the third person of the Trinity. He's not a force. He's not an it. He's a he. He's a person. And he's a third person of the Trinity, truly God. So that was week one. Week two, we look backwards and we answered the question, what is the Holy Spirit's work in the past? And the answer to that question, specifically week two, was he inspired the Scriptures. We talked about uh, what Paul said to Timothy and that all Scripture is breathed out, spirited out by God. We talked about Peter's words and saying that no prophecy of Scripture was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God, so that the end result was that human beings wrote the Bible, but they were inspired by the Holy Spirit in such a way that the words of the Bible are not only human words, but they're ultimately God's words. Last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit and the work of conviction. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment to the world. That's not anything that we can manufacture on our own, but that is a work of the Holy Spirit. And I told you last week that the work of conviction would be tied to what we're talking about this morning, and that's the work of regeneration. So not only when the Holy Spirit brings conviction to a person's life, does He just leave them there to wallow in their misery and feeling rotten about themselves, but He also regenerates them, and He gives that person new spiritual life. And so we'll just start with the basic baseline definition of this idea, regeneration. Regeneration is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit by which spiritually dead sinners are graciously given new spiritual life. It is a sovereign work of the Spirit. It is not something you can produce on your own. It is not something you or I or a band or a church service can manipulate or manufacture. It is something that only the Holy Spirit can do, and it is a gracious work. It is the Spirit of God doing something in our lives that is actually the opposite of what we deserve. We deserve death, we deserve judgment, but the Holy Spirit in grace is giving us life. Now to be honest with you, the actual word regeneration only shows up twice in the Bible. But the idea of regeneration, the idea that the Spirit of God brings life, new spiritual life, to God's people. That's a biblical idea found all throughout the scriptures, especially in the Gospel of John and especially in the book of 1 John, both of which were written by John the Apostle. This idea that the Spirit of God is going to cause us to be born again or to be born from above. So our passage is John chapter 3. What we're about to read is a story that no doubt is familiar to many of you, but it's not familiar to all of us equally. And so I don't want to take anything for granted, and I just want to make sure you understand what we're talking about when we jump into the Gospel of John in chapter 3. In John 3, we are early in Jesus' public ministry. Jesus has just began 
his public ministry. He did that when he was about 30 years of age. We don't know exactly, but around 30 years old, he began traveling, and he began teaching, and he began calling disciples to follow him, and he began performing miracles with increased regularity. He began healing people, and he began casting demons out of people. He even began challenging, sometimes directly, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. So this is early in Jesus' public ministry in John chapter 3. And there's a couple of verses that I want to draw your attention to at the end of John 2. So the very last little small paragraph, it's kind of flyover territory as you're moving between stories in the early chapters of John. But it's really important for putting a, a period on John 2 and it's essential for leading into John chapter 3. So just look with me at John chapter 2, verse 23. It says, When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now you might just draw your attention to the screens, because on the screens I've given you a little bit of an explanation of what John literally says here. What he literally says is, Jesus was in Jerusalem for the feast, and many people saw the signs that he was doing, and they believed in Jesus. And I think this is one of those instances, it's not the only one, but I think John intends you to read that first believe, the verb is pistio, with air quotes. Many people saw the things he was doing and they, quote unquote, believed in him. But Jesus, on his part, did not, the English translation says, did not entrust himself to them, but it's literally the exact same verb. What it literally says is Jesus did not believe in them. They believed in him, in a sense, but Jesus did not believe in them. Why? Because he knew what was in man. And he didn't need anyone to bear witness to him about what was in man. Can I remind you of one important truth as we begin this morning? You can fool every person in your life about what's going on in your heart. You can fool your friends, your family, your spouse, your pastor, your church family. You cannot fool the Lord Jesus Christ. John, who wrote this gospel, wrote the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, he describes Jesus as the one who has eyes like a flame of fire, which is a biblical way of saying, Jesus sees you, the real you, the you that maybe no one else sees and knows. You can fool everyone in your life, but you cannot fool Jesus. He knows what is in a man. He has no need of anyone bearing witness to him about what is in a man because he knows. Now I want you to see the tie-in to John 3. Okay, your Bible's open to the end of John 2. Verse 25 says he needed uh, no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now ignore the break, ignore the chapter change, ignore the heading and look at the very next words. Now there was a Man, a man came to Jesus. And John wants you to understand, Jesus knows this man. He doesn't know Jesus yet. He thinks he knows a lot of things. He really knows nothing. But Jesus knows him. 
And Jesus knows that spiritually he's dead, which is an interesting thing to say because outwardly this man named Nicodemus was a very good man. He was a Pharisee, which in the minds of John's readers didn't mean bad guy, it meant good guy. He's a moral, upstanding Good person. He is recognized by Jesus as a ruler of the Jews. He has a position of authority. Jesus even calls him the teacher of Israel. Like he's the seminary president. He's the top teacher in Jerusalem for all of God's people. Outwardly, he looks very, very good. Inwardly, he's dead. That's the thing about sin. We tend to think that sin makes us bad people. We look around and we see lots of good people. But the fundamental biblical teaching about sin is not that it makes you bad, it's that it makes you dead. That was true about Nicodemus. Outwardly, he looked like a great guy. Inwardly, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, 2, and 3 were all true of Nicodemus. He was dead in his trespasses and sins. He was following along with the course of this world like all the rest of mankind. He was enslaved to his own heart and his own passions and his own desires. He couldn't break free from his own sinful nature. He was actually, even though he was the the teacher, the teacher of Israel, he was following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. He was, like the rest of mankind, a child of God's wrath. Dead spiritually. And what Nicodemus needs, we'll see in a moment, is not to be better, but he needs to be alive. And that's something that the only the Holy Spirit can do. So as we begin, I want to be square about this. You can't understand the miracle of regeneration until you understand the depth of human depravity. Until you understand what the Bible says about the heart of mankind apart from God's grace that we're dead in our trespasses and sins, until you really reach that bottom level basement truth about who you are apart from God's grace, you cannot, you will not, you will never understand the glory of this miracle that we're going to talk about this morning called regeneration. Once you understand it, you see how vital it is. You see how essential it is. There's a man named John Murray. He wrote a short book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And he asked some questions in his chapter on regeneration that present the issue to us. How can a person who is dead in trespasses and sins, whose mind is enmity against God and who cannot do that which is well-pleasing to God, answer a call to the fellowship of Christ? And how can a person whose heart is depraved and whose mind is enmity against God embrace him who is the supreme manifestation of the glory of God. How can a person who is dead be made alive? That's the question. And Nicodemus is about to find out as we read this story that it's only through the miracle of regeneration. So take your copy of the scriptures and let's read these first eight verses in John chapter 3. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Father, this morning we're grateful that you've spoken to us by sending your Spirit to inspire these words that John wrote down thousands of years ago. We're thankful for the work of your Spirit in carrying John along as he wrote this gospel. And thankful that we have a word from you that is true and sure and certain. And we pray this morning that uh, the same Spirit who inspired this story, this book, uh, would take these truths and drive them home to our hearts, help us to understand this miracle of regeneration, and the difference that it makes in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll start with a simple question. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus about the Holy Spirit and the work of regeneration? We won't say everything that we could say about this story, but we'll just focus on what Jesus had to say about this miracle of regeneration. Number one, Jesus said, unless a person is born again... The Greek preposition could literally be translated born from above. Unless a person is born again or born from above, they cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. It's an offensive truth to many people, but it's a biblical truth from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless a person is regenerated, born again, they cannot. It's not just that they will not or it's unlikely, but it's that they can not. They lack the ability to be part of the kingdom of God. It's a, a necessary condition that Jesus is laying out. Essentially saying, if you want B to happen, A has to happen first. If you want to see the kingdom of God, then you must be born again. And that in fact, that's what Jesus says in verse 7. He says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Earlier this week, I received a text message from one of our beloved staff members, Jake Graves. The Mavericks were playing a basketball game, and Jake's favorite basketball player, Luka Doncic, was getting close to 70 points. And Jake texted me to make sure I was watching the basketball game. I don't know if you know this about Jake, but Jake has one hero in life, and his name is Luca. He loves Luca. He wants me to believe that Luca is the greatest basketball player who has ever walked on the face of the earth. And he's really good. He ended up in this game with 73 points in one basketball game. And when I received this text from Jake, it was a reminder to me that Jake's most fundamental, basic hope and dream in life is that he, Jake Graves, could play for the Dallas Mavericks. 
I don't know why you're laughing about that. That's a serious dream. You hurt Jake's feelings. If he could do any one thing in his life, much to our chagrin, it would not be to be the youth pastor at Emmanuel. It would be to play a game for the Dallas Mavericks. I have no words to describe to you how much Jake loves the Dallas Mavericks and how amazing it would be to him if he could suit up for one game with the Mavericks. It's just one problem. Jake's not part of the team. He's a loyal fan, but they did not draft Jake Graves coming out of Bowie High School. To my knowledge, they have not reached out to Jake Graves to sign him as an unrestricted free agent. And until and unless that happens, he's not going to play. You understand there's a condition that has to be met. I've been to a Mavericks game with Jake. We walked right down to the court. No one invited either of us to come on the court. We were ready. There we were. Got a point guard, you got a center, we'll play. But until you're drafted or until you're signed, you don't get to play. That's just how it works. It's a necessary condition. It's a categorical impossibility until one thing takes place. That's what Jesus is saying about being a part of the kingdom or receiving the gift of eternal life. He's saying it cannot happen. It will never happen. It is an absolute impossibility until and unless you are born again. You're born from above. So that's truth number one. Here's truth number two. Jesus made a distinction, helping Nicodemus understand this. He made a distinction between physical birth and spiritual birth. Physical birth and spiritual birth. When you look at verse 5, where Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, and you crack open books and commentaries, it's absolutely amazing how many different interpretations there are to what Jesus means when he says born of water and the Spirit. Everyone agrees on the Spirit part, the Holy Spirit. But all sorts of disagreement about what does he mean when he says you have to be born of water. And I have no time or intention of laying out all the different theories. There's about five or six uh, leading uh, explanations for what this means. What I'm simply saying to you is I think the context of the passage, the context of this conversation, and the obvious reading of what Jesus is saying suggests that he's making a distinction between physical birth, where you think about a woman's water breaking, and spiritual birth, which is a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And I say that because when Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God, what did Nicodemus say? He said, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you telling me that I have to enter the womb again and be born a second time? He, all he can think about is physical birth. That's what's on his mind. And he's having a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and he says, Nicodemus, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. There is physical birth, and that's important. And then there is spiritual birth, and it's essential if a person is going to see the kingdom of God. I think Jesus explains that in the very next verse, in verse 6. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. I think he's making a distinction for Nicodemus. Hey, we're not talking about physical birth. But we're talking about spiritual birth as being essential to seeing the kingdom. One way for you to think about this, just to sort of get it clear in your head, is this. 
if you are only born once, you will die twice. But if you are born twice, you will only die once. If you are only physically born and you're never born again spiritually, you will die twice. You will die physically and you will die spiritually and eternally. But if you are born twice of water and spirit, of the flesh and of the spirit, you will only die once. You will only die physically. And Jesus says you will receive the gift of eternal life. We'll look at these verses that follow in just a minute. So I think that's the idea here. And before I move on to the next truth too quickly, I want to take one moment of pastoral privilege to just say something serious to many of you. Because as we look at this text and we listen to Jesus try to straighten this out in Nicodemus' head and he talks about physical birth and spiritual birth and you have to be born of water and of spirit, the question arises for some of you, in reality for many of you, what about the little ones that we've lost, that we lost before they made it to physical birth? How do we think about instances of miscarriage? How do we think about situations like a stillbirth? How do we think about situations where we lose an infant very, very young before they have the opportunity to hear and to understand the gospel? And it's not my intention this morning to preach a whole sermon on that topic, but it is my intention just to say, because I think it comes into many of our hearts and our minds when you read this passage, that we have great biblical hope to believe that our little ones who have died are with the Lord. And I don't have one clear slam dunk Bible verse that I can just put in front of you and say, look this verse up and it clears it all up. I'm just talking about when we read the scriptures from beginning to end and we think about salvation and we think about God and we think about our little ones. I know that many of you carry around a grief from little ones that you've lost. And from time to time you probably think about them and you wonder about them. And what I'm saying to you is that I think we have great biblical reason, great biblical hope to believe that those little ones are with the Lord. And if that's something you wrestle with, and something that you ever want to talk about, I'm happy to visit with you about that. It's something that is sort of an ancillary point to what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here. So I've given you two truths. Let me give you one more. Number three, Jesus compared being born of the Spirit, and the word he uses is pneuma, that's the Greek word. Being born of the Spirit, he compares it to the blowing of the wind, which is also in Greek the word pneuma, same word. That same Greek word that means Holy Spirit or our spirit or wind or breath. He compares these two things in John chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. He says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, the pneuma, blows where it wishes. And you hear it sound and you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And English translations rightly use the word wind there because he's talking about the wind. We have wind in West Texas. You can feel it. When it's coming from a certain direction, you can see the dirt in the air. You can see the effects of it. You can see the trees moving back and forth. You can see the flags blowing. We understand the wind. He says, uh, the wind, it blows where it wishes. You hear the sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the pneuma of the Holy Spirit. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You don't control the wind and you don't control 
the Holy Spirit. It doesn't take you long living in West Texas to understand this biblical truth. That the Holy Spirit's like the wind. We don't control either. You know, there's biblical images in the Bible that we struggle with, like streams of flowing water. We don't have those. You've got to travel to put your hands on that and understand it. What about Psalm 1? Blessed is the man uh, who takes his stand on the Word of God. He's like a tree planted and strong. Well, we don't have a lot of trees. We have wind. And Jesus says, if you can understand the wind, you can understand something about the Holy Spirit because there's something similar in the way that they work. I'll give you an example of this. A couple years after my family moved here, uh, I decided I wanted to try to keep my outside plants alive. Got tired of giving Home Depot and Lowe's all my money in the greenhouse for buying new plants. So I said, I am going to put a greenhouse in my backyard. Didn't have a great spot in my garage. Didn't have a great spot in my house to put plants. So I said, I'm going to just put a little greenhouse in the back corner. I went to Harbor Freight and I bought the cheapest greenhouse that they sold at Harbor Freight. And it's just this little metal frame thing, rinky-dinky. It's got these plastic panels. And I bought it and I took the kit home and we put it up and there it was in my backyard. When the first winter came around, put all my plants in this little greenhouse. And guess what? A little space heater in there. They all made it. Everybody lived. Mission accomplished. It gets hot in Odessa. And the sun shines a lot. And sometimes it hails. And the hail went through my little polycarbonate panels and the sun baked the water that was in there and the dirt got all over them. And it didn't take but just a couple years. They became very brittle. And they started kind of getting flimsy. And then the wind started blowing. And my greenhouse panels went everywhere. To the front yard, all over the backyard, up and down the alley. Just like greenhouse panel kites blowing in the wind. Every time the wind would blow, I'd go fetch a panel. I'd put it back in. I'd clip it in place. Everything was good. The wind would come back. The panel would blow right out. A year ago, this little greenhouse was on its dying moment. Remember how early or how windy it was early in 2023? And one of those big windstorms, I was out there in the middle of the windstorm with a black roll of gorilla tape running circles around my greenhouse, trying to hold it in place, trying to make sure the panels stayed there and the water didn't get in and the snow didn't kill my plants and the frost stayed off. It was ridiculous. And so when the spring settled down, I said, I got to do something else. I got to get rid of this thing. It cannot handle the wind. And I looked around and I said, what can I do? And I said, I have a lot of children who can work in my house. Let's build a greenhouse. So I went to Winkler County. There's a Mennonite man replacing windows at the courthouse. I bought the old windows off of him. I took them home. I framed it up in the same spot as my old greenhouse. I said, I need a painting crew. I got lots of kids. Grab a paintbrush. We painted that thing. I didn't want to get up on the roof. So I put my kids up on the roof to lay the shingles down, and they did a great job laying the shingles straight. I think I used about 200,000 nails in this thing. Why? I can't control the wind. I can't stop the wind. And I thought I had a solution in place, and it lasted for a while, but I can't control the wind. So I needed something more permanent. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. 
Nicodemus, this doesn't happen through physical birth. There's physical birth and there's spiritual birth. You had little or nothing to do with your physical birth. Likewise, you have little or nothing to do with your spiritual birth because the Holy Spirit blows like the wind wherever it wishes. And you see the effects of it, Nicodemus, but you don't control the wind and you don't control the Holy Spirit. So that's what Jesus has to say. Now, as your pastor, I want to take a minute and I want to give you some qualifications here or some clarifications here. And on the front end, I want to explain to you why I'm about to share the things with you that I'm about to share. Some of you are going to hear these things and you're going to say, pastor's grouchy and he just likes to pick on people and he gets to stand up there and he likes to say how everyone's dumb and they don't read the Bible. Look, that's not my intention. My intention is not to pick a fight with anybody. My intention is for our church family to function the way Ephesians 4 says a church ought to function. And in Ephesians 4, Paul says to the church in Ephesus that God gave leaders to the church so that they could teach the word of God to the people of God. Do you know why? So that they wouldn't be children and so that they wouldn't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes along. So there's an aspect to teaching when we think about some of these things where we need to understand what the Bible says. We also need to be aware of the fact that there are people in the world who claim to be speaking for God, and maybe they even use Bible verses like John chapter 3, verse 8, and they're not saying anything that's true, and they're saying something that you ought to push back against. So Paul's aim... And talking about the, the role of these leaders in the church in Ephesus is that they teach in such a way that the church, they're not childish in their faith and they're not blown by every wind of doctrine, but that they are built and they are strong, not like a harbor freight greenhouse that stands as long as the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, but something that has a foundation and the strength to endure what we hear in the world. So I'm just going to lay out some of these clarifications so that we're all on the same page. Number one, the Holy Spirit will never lead the people of God to live in disobedience to the inspired Word of God. The Holy Spirit will never, 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 never lead a person to live their life in disobedience to what the Holy Spirit is inspired in the Scriptures. The Holy Spirit Co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Son. He's truly God. He breathed these words out. They are His words. God spoke these words. The Bible says it is impossible for God to lie. So there's a categorical impossibility that the Holy Spirit will come to you and subjectively lead you to do a thing that is in direct contradiction to what God has already said through His Spirit in the Scriptures. Okay? In our world, there is untold, almost indescribable confusion about gender and sexuality. There's confusion about who can serve as a pastor of a church. There's confusion about who can marry who. There's confusion about who gets to decide what gender I pick and does it have to match my biological sex. There's confusion about what marriage is and how permanent it is or it isn't. And in all of those conversations where people are confused, you will hear people who say, this is what they say, 
Yes, I know the Bible says X, Y, Z. But the Holy Spirit is leading me to do X, Y, Z. And it's in blatant contradiction to the Scriptures. And you understand, if you understand anything about how the Holy Spirit works, that the Holy Spirit will never lead anybody to live their life in blatant disobedience to the Scriptures. And so if a person says to you, the Spirit is leading me, Spirit blows where He wishes, and He's leading me in this new direction, and it's in violation to Scripture, you know that the Spirit is not leading that person at all. You know that it's probably something akin to what Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.1. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits in the teaching of demons. Number two, the Holy Spirit will never lead the people of God to focus on anyone or anything other than Jesus. So we're going to take one whole week in a few weeks to talk about John 16, where Jesus says that it's the job of the Holy Spirit to glorify Him, Jesus. That is the Holy Spirit's job in our church, is to make us think much of Jesus. The, the order of our songs this morning was perfect. We sang the Holy Spirit song after Chris spoke about missions. Almost everything in that Holy Spirit song matches what we're talking about in this series and who the Holy Spirit is and how He works. So we sang about the Holy Spirit. Then what's the very next song we sang? In Christ Alone. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, is to lead the people of God to focus on Jesus. How would this go sideways? Did you know it's an election year? My phone's been blowing up with political spam calls for the last two weeks. I don't think it's going to stop. Can I tell you that over the course of this next year, there will be churches who make presidential politics and candidates the focus of their church? And can I tell you that there will be some who do it on the right and there will be just as many who do it on the left. That will be the focus of presidential election. There's churches all over the Bible Belt who have made the decision that nostalgia will be the driving focus of their church. The most important thing is that they hold on to and they cling to some form and external picture of what the past was like and the present is the worst and we just want to go back to the past and we're going to cling to all these old things because the past was better than the present. And on the other end of that spectrum, there are a lot of churches all over the Bible Belt who will make coolness the focus of their church. How cool and modern and relevant and with it can we be? Those are two ends of the same spectrum. Both of them completely miss Jesus. Jesus is not the focus in either of those situations. There are churches all over our town, all over the North American continent, all over the world. We see them in Kenya. There are churches all over the world where the Holy Spirit is the focus. Where people give all their attention to what the Holy Spirit is subjectively doing in their life. And there's this idea amongst some of the people of God that the most spirit-filled churches are the ones where more, more people or almost all the people raise their hands. Or the most spirit-filled churches are the ones where people sing with their eyes closed. 
Or the most spirit-filled churches are the ones where the most people cry at the end of a service. Or the most spirit-filled churches are the ones where whatever. The most spirit-filled church that you will ever be part of is a church that is focused on Jesus. Not on the Holy Spirit, believe it or not. Because His job is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So that's number two. Number three, the Holy Spirit will never work outside the redemptive plan of the triune God. Before the foundation of the world, the triune God covenanted together to save a people for His glory. And there is unity within the Trinity, both in the existence of the triune God and in the outworking of His plan of redemption. Say, who would suggest that the Holy Spirit would work outside of this plan? Anybody who advocates a theological position called inclusivism. Inclusivism is the the basic idea that the Holy Spirit will save people apart from the preaching of the gospel and apart from faith in Jesus Christ. It's this idea that the Holy Spirit's sort of gone off script, He's gone rogue, the Father does His thing, the Son did His thing, but now the Spirit's just sort of out there randomly zapping people, bringing them to salvation, regenerating them apart from the preaching of the gospel and apart from people putting their faith in Jesus Christ. It's an unbiblical view, and it's a view that you would hear, for example, uh, in the Roman Catholic Church. The current Pope, just a few weeks ago, said, I'd like to think that hell will be empty in the end, and no one will be there. How would he think that? Well, if you dig into Catholic theology, it's the idea of inclusivism. It's the idea that the Holy Spirit can work through other religions to save people, not just in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You'll find the same idea at liberal mainline Protestant churches all over America who say, look, Jesus is, Jesus is great. We love Jesus. We're Christians. We're all for Jesus. But other people don't know about Jesus, and so God's going to probably save them in some other way. Maybe when they get to heaven, they'll realize that Jesus did it in the end, but they don't need to hear about it. They don't need to know about it. They don't need to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. We've read John 14, 6. But, you know, that's just for Christians. Yes, book of Acts says there's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved, but that just applies to us. It doesn't apply to other people. And the idea, the rationale is the wind blows where it wishes. The Holy Spirit is out there blowing. That's the justification. In contrast to that, I would point you to Ephesians 1 where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit work together in perfect unity to save sinners. I would point you to Romans chapter 10 that says unless a preacher is sent, And unless people hear the gospel, they cannot call on the name of Jesus for salvation. I would point you to Titus chapter 3 that says regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit and it comes through Jesus only. And I would point you to 1 Peter chapter 1 that says new birth, being born again, happens through the preaching of the word of God. As opposed to the inclusivist position, we would be exclusivist. Jesus is the only way. That a person can be saved. You understand this is why I ask you to give to a world missions offering. And why we send people to Kenya. 
It's because there's people who have not heard the truth about Jesus. And we have responsibility to help them here. It's why our church supports ministries like First Priority, where the gospel goes into our schools. It's why we support ministries like the Gideons. We ask you to buy Bibles so that the Gideons can go around town in different places and give Bibles to people who have never read the Scriptures. It's why we're going to ask you at the end of this service to buy a $5 meal ticket so a man in a prison can go to a Kairos weekend and hear the gospel shared. It's because we think those people need to hear the gospel if they're going to put their faith in Jesus if they're going to be regenerated. Look, this is why we do a VBS. I don't know if any of you have ever served with our VBS. It is the most ridiculous amount of chaos and work combined into one week that you could imagine. Why do we do that? Why don't we just take a cruise together or something? It's because we know there's kids in this town who need to hear the good news about Jesus. Why do we do a one on Wednesday nights? You should go upstairs and be involved in a one-on Wednesday night and see the kids up there. Many of them are not our kids. And it takes a lot of people to pull a one off. And Jennifer and the ladies, they work hard to get that staffed and organized as much as you can organize it. Why do we go to all that trouble? It's because we have read the Scriptures and we understand that apart from the preaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and apart from people putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will not be saved. And that the Holy Spirit works in unison and in unity with the Father and the Son in this work of regeneration. We're not putting God in a box. We're not limiting how God might work. We're simply listening to what the Spirit of God has said to us about how God does work in the Scriptures. So I gave you some helpful verses here. We won't dwell on these this morning. Uh, Genesis, Job, and Psalms, these are verses that speak about the Holy Spirit being involved in creation, giving life in the beginning. Matthew 1 and Luke 1 talks about the Holy Spirit working in Mary's womb to create life out of nothing, just like he did in the beginning. This is the miracle of the incarnation, God coming to dwell among us. Ezekiel 36, we read earlier, we have hearts of stone. God in his mercy takes them out and he gives us a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 37 is the same concept, different image. It's like we're a valley of dusty, uh, dusty, dry bones. And only this great wind, the Spirit of God blowing through us, can resurrect us back to life. That's what happened in the life of Jesus and that's what happens in the miracle of regeneration. 2 Corinthians 5, we're new creations. Ephesians 2, left to ourselves, we're dead in our sins. And God is the one who makes us alive. Look, I mentioned this earlier. This is not rocket science. The parallel is birth, being born. What did you contribute to your birth and conception? Nothing. What do you contribute? What do I contribute to this work of regeneration? Nothing. It is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, by which the Holy Spirit brings life. He graciously brings life to dead sinners. We're passive in this miracle, but we're not passive in response to this miracle. So the last point on your notes is this. The Holy Spirit is responsible for the miraculous work of regeneration. Our response is repentance and faith. And if you want to put your notes away, that's fine. But I'm going to ask you to keep your Bible open. 
because I want you to see how this works in this text. The discussion we just looked at between Jesus and Nicodemus about regeneration is bookended on either side with a discussion of the cross. So if you go backwards to John chapter 2, Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Passover. In verse 19, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they thought he was talking about bricks, the temple. And John explains, if you keep reading, that he wasn't talking about bricks, he was talking about his body. His death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection from the dead. So he's talking about the cross. And then if you keep going in John chapter 3, he continues talking about the cross. Look at what Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 14. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. When was the Son of Man lifted up? Lifted up on the cross. What's the result? Verse 15, whoever believes in him can have eternal life. Eternal life. That's being part of the kingdom of God. If you believe, you'll have the gift of eternal life. Look at John 3.16. Maybe you've read this verse before. It says, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Gave Him to do what? To die on a cross. Why? Well, so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll have eternal life. Look at verse 17. God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. How is the world saved through Jesus? It's through His death on the cross. Look at what He says in the very next verse. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. You can have the gift of eternal life. You can be free from this guilt of condemnation if you'll believe the good news about Jesus. Jesus, as John recounts this conversation, also says something about repentance. Look at verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You can't truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ without turning from your darkness. Without turning from your sin. That's repentance. You have to leave the darkness and you have to come to the light. And there's something uncomfortable in that for all of us. But that's the biblical call in response to what Christ has done to save sinners. That's our response to the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration in our lives. There's a man named Sinclair Ferguson. He wrote a wonderful book about the Holy Spirit. He has a chapter about regeneration. And he says this, Faith will always be penitent. Repentance will always be believing if it's genuine. There is no regeneration which is not expressed in both faith and repentance. The Spirit's job is the miracle of regeneration. It comes about through the preaching of His Word. Your response and my response is to turn from our darkness and to come to the light, to put our faith in the Lord Jesus.